Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are staying engaged and committed to paying attention as we work to capture the conversation with active listening. The need to be heard is one of the most powerful motive forces in human nature. But who's really listening? Do you need me to repeat it? I said, who is listening? The world is full of distractions. A distraction that we create, technology in the hand, in front of the face, on the wrist, and in the background, all while we're trying to navigate a busy life. The distraction that assaults us from every angle, marketers, popping ads, automatic video starts, commercials, deals, special offers, it is way too much. How can you cut through the noise and focus on one person and one conversation? I always thought I was a good listener. You know, a shoulder to cry on, someone to vent to and brainstorm with. But I wasn't aware of the difference between listening and active listening until I became a coach. In sales, it helps to listen, but you find yourself weeding through the information, looking for pain points and buying signals so that you can capitalize on them. In a general conversation, you're listening long enough to find commonality so that you can respond with something in the same context, a volley of sorts. Your friend says, This weekend, we're going to a concert. Your brain hears weekend, and you start thinking about what you're doing that weekend, or concert, and which concerts you've seen, and which ones you want to see. And when it's your turn, you can return the volley with an interesting and relatable story. But just think, what did you miss while you were formulating your response? At mindtools.com, I found an introduction to active listening and how to hear what people are really saying. Listening is one of the most important skills you can have. How well you listen has a major impact on your job effectiveness and on the quality of your relationships with other people. For instance, we listen to obtain information, to understand, for enjoyment, and to learn. Given all the listening that we do, you would think we'd be good at it. In fact, most of us aren't. And research suggests that we only remember about 25% and 50% of what we hear as described by Edgar Dale's Cone of Experience. That means that when you talk to your boss, colleagues, customers, or spouse for 10 minutes, they pay attention to less than half of the conversation. Turn it around and it reveals that when you're receiving directions or being presented with information, you aren't hearing the whole message either. You hope the important parts are captured in the first 25 to 50%, but what if they're not? Clearly, listening is a skill that we can all benefit from improving. By becoming a better listener, you can improve your productivity and your ability to influence, persuade, and negotiate. What's more, you'll avoid conflict and misunderstandings. All of these are necessary for workplace success. So here's a tip. Good communication skills require a high level of self-awareness. 
understanding your own personal style of communicating will go a long way toward helping you to create good and lasting impressions with others. The way to improve your listening skills is to practice active listening. This is where you make a conscious effort to hear not only the words that another person is saying, but more importantly, the complete message being communicated. In order to do this, you have to pay attention to the other person very carefully. You can't allow yourself to become distracted by whatever else may be going on around you or by forming counter-arguments while the other person is still speaking. Nor can you allow yourself to get bored and lose focus on what the other person is saying. So here's a tip. If you're finding it particularly difficult to concentrate on what someone is saying, try repeating their words mentally as they say them. This will reinforce their message and help you stay focused. To enhance your listening skills, you need to let the other person know that you are listening to what they're saying. To understand the importance of this, ask yourself if you've ever had a conversation when you wondered if the other person was listening to what you were saying. You wonder if your message is getting across or if it's even worthwhile continuing to speak. It feels like talking to a brick wall and it's something you want to avoid. Acknowledgement can be something as simple as a nod of the head or a simple, "Uh uh-huh. You aren't necessarily agreeing with the person. You're simply indicating that you are listening. Using body language and other signs to acknowledge your listening can also help you pay attention. Try to respond to the speaker in a way that will encourage them to continue speaking so that you can get the information that you need. While nodding and uh uh-huh says you're interested, An occasional question or comment to recap what's been said also communicates that you're listening and understanding the message. There are five key active listening techniques you can use to help you become a more effective listener. Number one, pay attention. Give the speaker your undivided attention and acknowledge the message. Recognize that nonverbal communication also speaks loudly. Look at the speaker directly. Put aside distracting thoughts. Don't mentally prepare a rebuttal. Avoid being distracted by environmental factors. For example, side conversations. Listen to the speaker's body language. Number two. Show that you're listening. Use your own body language and gestures to show that you're engaged. Nod occasionally. Smile and use other facial expressions. Make sure that your posture is open and interested. Encourage the speaker to continue with small verbal comments like yes and "Uh uh-huh. Number three, provide feedback. Our personal filters, assumptions, judgments, and beliefs can distort what we hear. As a listener, your role is to understand what's being said. This may require you to reflect on what's being said and to ask questions. You can paraphrase what's been said by saying, what I'm hearing is, and it sounds like you're saying, are great ways to reflect back. Ask questions to clarify certain points. What do you mean when you say, or is this what you mean? Summarize the speaker's comments periodically. Here's a tip. 
If you find yourself responding emotionally to what someone says, say so and ask for more information. I may not be understanding you correctly, and I find myself taking what you said personally. What I thought you said was this. Is that what you meant? Number four, defer judgment. Interrupting is a waste of time. It frustrates the speaker and limits full understanding of the message. Allow the speaker to finish each point before asking questions. Don't interrupt with counter arguments. Number five, respond appropriately. Active listening is designed to encourage respect and understanding. You're gaining information and perspective. You add nothing by attacking the speaker or otherwise pulling them down. Be candid, open, and honest in your response. Assert your opinions respectively. Treat the other person in a way you would think you would want to be treated. So here are some key points. It takes a lot of concentration and determination to be an active listener. Old habits are hard to break. And if your listening skills are as bad as many people's are, then you'll need to do a lot of work to break these bad habits. There are five key techniques you can use to develop your active listening skills. Pay attention, show that you're listening, provide feedback, defer judgment, and respond appropriately. I love eye contact and am generous with it when I'm attending a lecture. I normally sit close to the front, not because I'm a teacher's pet, I promise, but because it helps me stay focused and engaged. Usually the speaker will focus on me more than the rest of the room. Now, why do you think that is? It's because I'm completely dialed in. I frequently nod to key points and respond with positive body language. The speaker feels comfortable and encouraged in their delivery, so they stay dialed in too. Now, sitting at my computer with a gazillion tabs open, suffering from Zoom fatigue? Squirrel! It's a totally different story. Why do you think that is? Adam Hayes explored the human attention span found at Weisel.com. Feeling like you can't concentrate for more than a few seconds these days? Don't worry, you're not alone. It turns out humans are now officially worse at focusing than goldfish. Yep, you heard it right. Our aquatic pals are leaving us in the slipstream when it comes to paying attention. Research has shown that between 2000 and 2015, our attention spans shrank by a whopping 25%. That's like going from being able to binge watch an entire season of Friends to struggling to get through a single episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Sad, but true. And if you manage to make it to the end without getting distracted by your phone, your email, your cat, your neighbor's dog, or that weird stain on your shirt, give yourself a round of applause. You're officially a focus superstar. So here are some crazy facts about the human attention span. According to research, our attention span has markedly decreased in just 15 years. In 2000, our average attention span was 12 seconds. In just 15 years, it dropped to 8.25 seconds. The average attention span of a goldfish is 9 seconds. An office worker, on average, will check their email box 
30 times every hour. The average user picks up their phone, get this, more than 1,500 times per week, taking up an average of three hours and 16 minutes a day. Who's got their phone in their hand right now? On the average web page, users will read about 28% of the words during an average visit. Actually, 20% is more likely. The average page visit lasts less than a minute, and users often leave web pages in just seconds, 10 to 20 seconds to be exact. Is there good news? Well, there are still ways to hold attention. According to Nielsen Research Pages, with a clear value proposition, you're able to hold people's attention for much longer. If you have a website for personal use or for business, here's some top tips. Be clear in your messaging. Focus on your ease of use and navigation. Users won't hang around to try and find what they're looking for if it's not easy. Keep your messaging short and sweet. Appeal to customers' desires. Tell stories. Use rich media like video and make the first eight seconds attention-grabbing. Video holds attention. In fact, average length watched on a single internet video is 2.7 minutes. 59% of senior executives would rather watch a video than read a text when both are available. Are you the same? I can remember when my children were young and they would come home with their backpacks. Now, as a parent, a busy parent, I might add, I was looking for a couple of things. How much do I owe? When do I need to be there? And inevitably, I would get a long form letter type newsletter with anything important embedded in the very middle of the entire sheet. Frustrating. So just like this, I would tell teachers, anything that you need to say, say it in the top paragraph. The average attention span is 12 seconds? Whoa. I got this feeling inside my bones. It goes electric, baby, when I turn it on. Off from my city, off from my home. That's it. That's all you got. Who already grabbed their phone? You better sharpen your elevator pitch and include all your key points in the first couple of sentences. Seriously, though, consumers have become very fickle with the content they consume. What happens when you search for an answer on the web? and are delivered a long article with a fluffy introduction and obvious keyword padding mixed with obnoxious ads interrupting the article scanning technique you've perfected because you don't want to read. You're frustrated and put out and will probably research. Why are we in such a hurry? What happened to our patience level and our attention spans? If you find the culprit, are you willing to make a change? Let's revisit that question once we hear from Johan Hari, and he explains how your attention didn't collapse. It was stolen. Social media and many other facets of modern life are destroying our ability to concentrate. We need to reclaim our minds while we still can. This was found at theguardian.com. Johan says, when he was nine years old, my godson Adam developed a brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. 
He took to singing jailhouse rock at the top of his voice with all the low crooning and pelvis jiggling of the king himself. One day, as I tucked him in, he looked at me very earnestly and asked, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? Without really thinking, I agreed. I never gave it another thought until everything had gone wrong. Ten years later, Adam was lost. He dropped out of school when he was 15. He spent almost all of his waking hours alternating blankly between screens, a blur of YouTube, WhatsApp, and porn. Johan says, I've changed his name and some minor details to preserve his privacy, of course. He seemed to be worrying at the speed of Snapchat, and nothing still or serious could gain any traction in his mind. During the decade in which Adam had become a man, this fracturing seemed to be happening to many of us. Our ability to pay attention was cracking and breaking. Johan said, I had just turned 40, and wherever my generation gathered, we would lament over lost capacity for concentration. I still read a lot of books, but with each year that passed, it felt more and more like running up and down an escalator. Then one evening, as we lay on my sofa, each staring at our own ceasingly shrieking screens, I looked at him and felt a low dread. Adam, I said softly, let's go to Graceland. I reminded him of the promise I had made. I could see that the idea of breaking this numbing routine ignited something in him, but I told him there was one condition, and he had to stick with it if we went. He had to switch his phone off during the day. He swore he would. When you arrive at the gates of Graceland, there is no longer a human being whose job is to show you around. You're handed an iPad. You put in your little earbuds and the iPad tells you what to do. Turn left, turn right, walk forward. In each room, a photograph of where you are appears on the screen while a narrator describes it. So as we walked around, we were surrounded by blank-faced people looking almost all the time at their screens. As we walked, I felt more and more tense. When we got to the jungle room, Elvis's favorite place in the mansion, the iPad was chattering away when a middle-aged man standing next to me turned to say something to his wife. In front of us, I could see the large fake plants that Elvis had bought to turn this room into his own artificial jungle. Honey, he said, this is amazing, look. He waved the iPad in her direction and began to move his fingers across it. If you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left, and if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. His wife stared, smiled, and began to swipe at her iPad. I leaned forward. But sir, I said, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you can do. It's called turning your head. Because we're here. We're in the jungle room. You can see it unmediated. Here, look. I waved my hand and the fake green leaves rustled a little. Their eyes returned to their screens. Look, I said, don't you see? We're actually there. There's no need for your screen. We're in the jungle room. They hurried away. I turned to Adam, ready to laugh about it all. But he was in the corner holding his phone under his jacket, flipping through Snapchat. At every stage in the trip, he had broken his promise. When the plane first touched down in New Orleans two weeks before, he took out his phone while we were still in our seats. 
You promised me not to use it, I said. He replied, I meant I wouldn't make phone calls. I can't not use Snapchat and texting, obviously. He said this with baffled honesty, as though I had asked him to hold his breath for 10 days. In the jungle room, I suddenly snapped and tried to wrestle his phone from his grasp, and he stomped away. That night, I found him in the Heartbreak Hotel, sitting next to the swimming pool, shaped like a giant guitar, looking sad. I realized as I sat with him that as with so much anger, my rage towards him was really anger towards myself. His inability to focus was something I felt happening to me too. I was losing my ability to be present and I hated it. I know something's wrong, Adam said, holding his phone tightly in his hand, but I have no idea how to fix it. Then he went back to texting. I realized then that I needed to understand what was really happening to him and to so many of us. That moment turned out to be the start of a journey that transformed how I think about attention. I traveled all over the world in the next three years, from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne, interviewing the leading experts in the world about focus. What I learned is that we are living in a serious attention crisis, one with huge implications for how we live. I learned there are 12 factors that have been proven to reduce people's ability to pay attention, and that many of these factors have been rising in the past few decades, sometimes dramatically. I went to Portland, Oregon to interview Professor Joel Nigg, who is one of the leading experts in the world on children's attention problems, and he told me we need to ask if we are now developing an attentional, pathogenic culture, an environment in which sustained and deep focus is harder for all of us. Professor Barbara Demenix, a leading French scientist, put it bluntly, There is no way we can have a normal brain today. We can see the effects all around us. A small study of college students found they now only focus on one task for 65 seconds. A different study of office workers found that they only focus an average of three minutes. This isn't happening because we all individually became weak-willed. Your focus didn't collapse, it was stolen. When I got back from Graceland, Johan said, I thought my attention was failing because I wasn't strong enough as an individual and because I had been taken over by my phone. I went into a spiral of negative thoughts, reproaching myself. I'd say, you're weak, you're lazy, you're not disciplined enough. I thought the solution was obvious. Be more disciplined and banish your phone. So I went online and booked myself a little room by the beach in Provincetown on the tip of Cape Cod. I announced triumphantly to everyone, I'm going to be there for three months with no smartphone, no computer, I can't get online, I'm done. I'm tired of being wired. I knew I could only do it because I was very lucky and had money from my previous books. I knew it couldn't be a long-term solution. I did it because I thought that if I didn't, I might lose some crucial aspects of my ability to think deeply. I also hoped that if I stripped everything back for a time, I might start to be able to glimpse the changes we could all make in a more sustainable way. Johan said, in my first webless week, I stumbled around in a haze of decompression. Provincetown is a resort town with the highest proportion of same-sex couples in the U.S. I ate cupcakes, read books, talked with strangers, and sang songs. 
everything radically slowed down. Normally, I follow the news every hour or so, getting a drip feed of anxiety-provoking facts and trying to smush them together into some sort of uh, thing that makes sense. Instead, I simply read a physical newspaper once a day. Every few hours, I would feel an unfamiliar sensation gurgling inside me, and I would ask myself, what is that? Ah, yes, it's calm. Later, I realized when I interviewed the experts and studied their research that there were many reasons why my intention was starting to heal from that first day. Professor Earl Miller, a neuroscientist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, explained one to me. He said, your brain can only produce one or two thoughts in your conscious mind at once. That's it. We're very, very single-minded. We have a very limited cognitive capacity, but we have fallen for an enormous delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six forms of media at the same time. When neuroscientists study this, they found that when people believe they are doing several things at once, they are actually juggling. They're switching back and forth. They don't notice the switching because their brain sort of papers it over to give a seamless experience of consciousness. But what they're actually doing is switching and reconfiguring their brain moment to moment, task to task, and that comes with a cost. Imagine saying you're doing your tax return and then you receive a text and you look at it. It's only a glance taking three seconds and then you go back to your tax return. In that moment, your brain has to reconfigure. When it goes from one task to another, you have to remember what you were doing before and you have to remember what you thought about it. When this happens, the evidence shows that your performance drops. You're slower. All is a result of switching. This is called the switch cost effect. It means that if you check your texts while trying to work, you are only losing the little bursts of time you spend looking at the text themselves. You're also losing the time it takes to refocus afterwards, which turns out to be a huge amount. For example, one study at the Carnegie Mellon University's Human Computer Interaction Lab took 136 students and got them to sit a test. Some of them had to have their phones switched off and others had their phones on and received intermittent text messages. The students who received messages performed, on an average, 20% worse. It seems to me that almost all of us are currently losing about 20% of our brain power almost all the time. Miller told Johan that as a result, we now live in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation. For the first time in a very long time, in Provincetown, I was doing one thing at a time without being interrupted. Yohan said, I was living within the limits of what my brain could actually handle. I felt my attention growing and improving with every day that passed. But then one day, I experienced an abrupt setback. I was walking down the beach, and every few steps, I saw the same thing that had been scratching at me since Memphis. People seem to be using Provincetown simply as a backdrop for selfies, rarely looking up at the ocean or each other. Only this time, the itch I felt wasn't to yell, 
You're wasting your lives. Put the dadgum phone down. It was to yell, give me that phone. Mine. (sighs) For so long, I had received the thin, incessant signals of the web every few hours throughout the day. The trickle of likes and comments that say, I see you. You matter. And now they were gone. Losing the web felt like the world had gone silent. After the rhetorical heat of social media, ordinary social interactions seemed pleasing but low volume. No normal social interaction floods you with hearts. I realized to heal my attention, it was not enough to simply strip out distractions. That makes you feel good at first, but then it creates a vacuum where all the noise was. I realized I had to fill the vacuum. To do that, I started to think a lot about the area of psychology. I had learned about it years before, the science of flow states. Almost everyone has experienced a flow state at some point. It's when you're doing something meaningful and you really get into it and time falls away and your ego seems to vanish and you find yourself focusing deeply and effortlessly. Flow is the deepest form of attention human beings can offer. But how do we get there? Johan said, I later interviewed Professor Mihai Csikszentmihalyi in Claremont, California, who was the first scientist to study flow states and research them for more than 40 years. From his research, I learned that there are three key factors that you need to get into the flow. First, you need to choose one goal. Flow takes all your mental energy deployed deliberately in one direction. Second, the goal needs to be meaningful to you. You can't flow into a goal that you don't care about. Third, it helps if what you're doing is at the edge of your abilities. Like the rock you're climbing is slightly higher and harder than the last rock you climbed. So every morning, I started to write. A different kind of writing from my earlier work. One that stretched me. Within a few days, I started to flow, and hours of focus would pass without it feeling like a challenge. I felt I was focusing in the way I had when I was a teenager, in long, effortless stretches. I had feared my brain was breaking, and I cried with relief when I realized that in the right circumstances, its full power could come back. At the end of every day, I would sit on the beach and watch the light slowly change, The light on the cape is unlike the light anywhere else I've ever seen. I could see it more clearly than I ever had before in my life. My own thoughts, my goals, my dreams. I was living in the light. So when the time came to leave the beach house and come back to the hyperlinked world, I became convinced I had cracked the code of attention. I returned to the world determined to integrate the new lessons I had learned into my everyday life. When I was reunited with my phone and laptop after taking a ferry back to where they were stashed in Boston, they seemed alien and alienating. But within a few months, my screen time was back to four hours a day and my attention was fraying and breaking again. In Moscow, the former Google engineer, James Williams, who has become the most important philosopher of attention in the Western world, told me I had made a crucial mistake. Individual abstinence is not the solution, for the same reason that wearing a gas mask for two days a week outside isn't the answer to pollution. It might, for a short period of time, 
keeps certain effects at bay, but it's not sustainable and it doesn't address the systemic issues. He said that our attention is being deeply altered by huge invasive forces in wider society. Saying the solution was to just adjust your own habits, to pledge to break up with your phone, was just pushing it back on the individual. It's really the environmental changes that will really make the difference. I learned that the factors harming our attention are not all immediately obvious. I'd been focused on tech at first, but in fact, the causes range very widely. From the food we eat to the air we breathe, from the hours we work to the hours we no longer sleep. I came to believe we need to respond to this incessant invasion of our attention at two levels. The first is individual. There are all sorts of changes we can make at a personal level that will protect our focus. I would say that by doing most of them, I've boosted my focus about 20%. But we have to level with people. Those changes will only take you so far. At the moment, it's as though we are all having itching powder poured all over us all day. And the people pouring the powder are saying, you might want to learn to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. Meditation is a useful tool, but we actually need to stop the people who are pouring itching powder on us. We need to band together to take on the forces stealing our attention and take it back. Johan said, this can sound a bit abstract, but I met people who were putting it into practice in so many places. To give one example, there is strong scientific evidence that stress and exhaustion ruin your attention. Today, about 35% of workers feel that they could never switch off their phones because their boss might email them at any time, day or night. In France, ordinary workers decided this was intolerable and pressured their government for change. So now they have a legal right to disconnect. It's simple. You have a right to define your work hours and you have a right to not be contacted by your employer outside of those hours. Companies that break the rules get huge fines. There are a lot of potential collective changes like this that can restore part of our focus. We could, for example, force social media companies to abandon their current business model, which is specifically designed to invade our attention in order to keep us scrolling. Some scientists say these worries about attention are a moral panic, comparable to the anxieties in the past about comic books or rap music, that the evidence is shaky. Other scientists say that the evidence is strong and these anxieties are like the early warnings about the obesity epidemic or the climate crisis in the 1970s. I think that given this uncertainty, we can't wait for perfect evidence. We have to act based on a reasonable assessment of risk. If the people warning about the effects on our attention turn out to be wrong and we still do what they suggest, what will be the cost? We'll spend less time being harassed by our bosses and we'll be tracked and manipulated less by technology, along with lots of other improvements in our lives that are desirable in any case. But if they turn out to be right and we don't do what they say, what's the cost? We will have, as the former Google engineer Tristan Harris told me, downgraded humanity, stripping us of our attention at the very time when we face big collective crises that require it more than ever. Well, what do you think? Ready to make some changes? 
When is the last time you scheduled a date with a friend? Not a concert, movie, or shopping. A coffee catch-up or a meal. You know, sitting across the table from another person. Phones off, in your purse, or better yet, in the car. Now, you can catch up on the day-to-day and banter back and forth, but what if you gave each other space to share? This means one person goes first and shares without interruption until they're totally done. Then the next person goes in the same manner. And at the end, you can connect the dots with common themes and dive in a little deeper into a single topic. You might even consider suggesting a topic, like a book, a program, an idea, challenges, or something to celebrate. A good conversation requires balance between simplicity and detail, staying on topic and changing it, asking questions and answering them. But what about the art versus the act of listening? Simon Sinek is a leadership expert and author of multiple best-selling books, including Leader, Eat Last, Start With Why, and most recently, The Infinite Game. He's also famous for his 2009 TED Talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. Over at his YouTube channel, I found a different perspective, the art of listening. So listening is not the act of hearing the words spoken. It is the art of understanding the meaning behind those words. Um, and, uh, you know, when people say you're not listening to me and we simply parrot back the words that they were said, congratulations, your ears worked. You know, that is the act, that is the act of listening. Um, but the art of listening is, is creating an environment in which the other person feels heard. Now, you notice what I said there. The other person, and I used an emotional word, feels, right? I don't want to know that you heard the words. I want to feel, I want to feel heard. And feel seen. I want to feel understood, and that is a learnable, practicable, learnable, practicable skill. So it's uh, there are many parts of it. It's things like replacing judgment with curiosity, right? That's a hard thing to do. We're a pretty judgy group, right? Um, to be curious where someone has a point of view. It's creating a safe space for someone to, as my as my friend Dia Khan calls it, empty the bucket. So even if we find what they're saying just reprehensible, right? You're never going to be able to actually have dialogue until at least one of the parties gets the opportunity to say everything without judgment. And, it, and as she calls it, emptying the bucket. And once a person, somebody feels like they've completely said everything, then they're more apt to listen to you. But usually what we do is we defend, or we litigate, or we interrupt. We point out flaws in logic, which is just frustrating. And when you point out some flaws in somebody's logic, because we're all imperfect when we speak, and we all choose the wrong words at various times, and that's not what I meant. You know what I meant is what we have to say. Well, what if you know what you meant? Then why don't you say what you... You can see how this spirals. Um, uh, um, but it's things like when somebody says something, you know, and there, there's really easy ways to do it. Things like, go on, tell me more. What else? And they keep talking. And you go quiet, they feel the space. Tell me more. Go on. And eventually, it's all out. And then there's a safe space for you to respond or to, and express yourself in a constructive way. But, but that's correct. We, we, we do not teach listening. And listening is the way to create, um, uh, to, uh, to build trust with someone. You know, you make someone feel heard, they'll trust you. You know, um, it is the way to find common ground um, in opposition. 
in simple cases in business, but in more complicated cases uh, in national politics or in global politics or in war. You know, why do you know? We, my uh, Bill Yuri, William Yuri, who wrote Getting to Yes, he he talks about the same thing. He goes, we have talk shows, but we don't have listen shows. He says we have peace talks, but what we really need is peace listens. You know, and and he who's been at the table of at the highest levels of peace negotiations, he said people show up and start demanding what they want, and that's how the negotiations begin. Nobody starts by saying, so tell me why you came here. There's a great documentary that I recommend to learn this. It's called White Right, Meeting the Enemy by Dia Khan. <clears throat> in a nutshell, Dia uh, is a Muslim woman living in the UK who was trolled by white supremacists to the point where the police got involved because her life was at risk. They told her stay away from open windows. That's how bad it got. The way Dia responded was by moving to the United States and going to meet the white supremacists. And she brought her cameras. I mean, you can see it all happen in this documentary. And basically, she gave them a safe space to feel heard. Now, that sounds mad. Like, why should she give them a safe space to feel heard? They should give her a safe space. Yeah, fine, good. You know, like, it's never going to happen. Dia sits down with these white supremacists and she gives them a safe space to feel heard. It's extreme listening. Um, and I say it's extreme because, I mean, they hate her, you know? They don't just disagree with her. Uh, they want her off the planet. Um, and, uh, and she lets them empty their bucket, as she calls it, and then conversation begins. And because they feel heard, they start to trust her. And as they start to trust her, she becomes a friend. And then what it creates uh, uh, this paradox where I'm supposed to hate this woman but I trust her and consider her a friend. And what you see is one by one, these white supremacists, these diehard white supremacists, start dropping out of the movement because they can no longer reconcile their beliefs with reality. And if, if it can happen in this extreme environment, then it can happen anywhere. And um, all that is required for us to cross political divides or you know, uh, disagreements at work and things like that is one of the parties has to learn how to listen. It doesn't even require both parties to learn the skill. That's the amazing thing. And uh, it, is, it is one of the most remarkable, remarkable skills that anyone can learn, the power of listening, yeah. So the documentary is a great extreme example of, of, of what it can do. share Encouraged Mentology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit EncouragedMentology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, don't just turn on your listening ears, but really commit to dialing into a conversation as you seek to understand. Everyone wants a chance to be heard. So receive before you give. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Somewhere through until the path was clear. That's when I found you.